Hello all, and welcome back to the Global in the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. My name is Tim Horgan, and I am the Executive Director of the Council. First and foremost, I want to send positive vibes out into the world in order to wish you, your family, and friends the best of health and safety during these difficult times. As has been stated many times before, but still bears repeating, Please do follow all recommendations for social distancing, washing your hands, and maintaining your physical as well as mental health. It's my pleasure that you have taken the time to listen into our podcast and that you are interested in better understanding the world we live. During this current global crisis, it is important that we all remain engaged in the world and remember that the problems that were ongoing before this crisis are still happening today. Some actually are even getting worse as attention is pulled to combating this pandemic. For this reason, the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire is committed to bring important and engaging content into the online sphere. We will continue our podcasts through over-the-phone interviews with experts and would be more than happy to hear from you about what topics you are interested in. We are also working to bring a slate of online video live streams for our audiences to connect with and engage with speakers. Finally, we are also looking at other fun opportunities, like bringing our pub global pop trivia to an online format. Please continue to monitor our website and social media to stay up to date on upcoming online events. We're excited to provide these opportunities, as well as to get back to in-person programming as soon as it is feasible. In this episode of Global in the Granite State, we speak with a former ambassador and a current professor about the current situation of democracy in the world. With Ambassador Adrian Basora, we take a global view of this and talk about why the U.S. and New Hampshire should care about democratic backsliding in different countries. We then take the time to speak with Javier Corrales, a professor at Amherst College, about the specific case of democratic backsliding in Venezuela. Join us for these great conversations. about why democracy is important to us and why democracy is important in the world is not simply about ideals, noble ideals. It is also about our national security. That is Ambassador Adrian Basora, Senior Fellow and Co-Chair of the Eurasia Program at the Foreign Policy Research Institute in Philadelphia. He was Ambassador to Czechoslovakia from 1992 until 1995 helping to oversee the successful break of the Czech Republic and Slovakia. He joined us via phone to discuss the importance of democracy and why people should be concerned about global trends and rising authoritarianism. Right. Well, why democracy matters to me, to our country, and to this state, of course, goes so deep that I wouldn't want to get into an extremely uh, thorough narrative about it. But we are the first democracy in the world, unless you count Athenian democracy 23 or 2400 years into the past. 
And secondly, the defense of democracy has been a tremendously important part of our foreign policy, but also who we are as a nation, especially uh, with Woodrow Wilson and the reasons we went into World War II and his attempt to create a League of Nations to help promote democratic governance around the world. More importantly and more powerfully and more recently, our entry into World War II to defend the little democracy that was left after Hitler's onslaughts and taking over most of continental Europe for an authoritarian government. So after that World War II intervention, it became very clear once Stalin had showed us completely, it became very clear that our survival as a nation depended in part on holding back the progression of Stalin's imperialist kind of spreading of communism or uh, promotion of communism and imposing of communism militarily in many places. And so we, for a 70-year period, shortly after World War II, this has been a dominant theme of our foreign policy. And for good reason, uh, let me emphasize that we did it because we saw our democracy, we saw our way of life threatened by the rise of authoritarianism and very powerful and ruthless authoritarianism, first with Hitler and then with Stalin. And we drew some lessons from that. We waged the Cold War, I think, on balance, intelligently. We made some mistakes. But it turned out very, very well for us, at least as of the fall of the Iron Curtain, uh, the breakup of the Soviet Union, the position of the United States and of our values in the world and of our economy and other areas of leadership, scientific, educational, etc., were greatly favored by the whole 70-year period, starting right after, or even beginning at Bretton Woods here in New Hampshire, with the creation of the uh, IMF and the World Bank on the economic side, and the, the UN is particularly when we were particularly uh, strong in leading the UN in the right direction, etc. All these things started way back in the 1940s and served us very well. By the time the book called Does Democracy Matter, judging the role of U.S. foreign policy in promoting or supporting democracy around the world, uh, by the time that was written, I wrote it because, or I pulled together and organized a conference and met uh, many co-authors who wrote chapters for the book. By that time, it was clear that a lot of a lot of people in the political world and otherwise, but especially in in our political parties, were beginning in both parties, by the way, were beginning to wonder whether we had done the right thing, whether it was important, or there were already signs of a creeping, what I would call creeping isolationism. And of course, that is not the first time that's happened in the United States. It's happened right after World War One, where Wilson was not able to keep a majority in Congress or the American electorate in, in favor of his very, in my view, foresighted policy. So uh, that is why we pulled together a conference. That's why we ultimately uh, refined the conference presentations into chapters and what we thought it was worth putting it into a book form. That book went to press before the November 2016 election. And the world has changed drastically uh, since that election, but we can get into that if you wish later on. If you have been paying attention to global trends, which since you're listening to this podcast, I imagine you do, you will have noticed that there is a new wave of authoritarian governments popping up all over the world. This spring, the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire was focusing its programming on these trends, and many of our online programs in the coming months will focus on this. However, the question always is, is this something we need to worry about? We certainly do need to worry, and, and not just on account of China, but also on account of Russia, which is aggressively also promoting this kind of authoritarian populism that Putin is practicing. What I've seen over my 50 or 55-year career in international affairs is that democracy and reversals of democracy has indeed come in waves. We have seen over the past 10 or 15 years, what Samuel Huntington called a reverse wave of democratization. 
after the enormous gains that followed the, the end of the Cold War, so many new democracies and so much hope that liberalization would occur not only in the post-communist countries, but well beyond them. That lasted for about 15 years, but in the last 10 or 15 years, there's been a lot of regression. You know, what happens there doesn't stay there. What happens here doesn't stay here. In this very global world, all of a sudden, the kind of populism that we've seen in, in the United States with our current president, his approach to politics, and in other countries, with Viktor Orban, very successful politically in Hungary, despite and to some extent because of his authoritarian leanings, those examples tend to be followed by others. A lot of the rhetoric that our president uses or that Viktor Orban uses or that some of the other authoritarian leaders we could mention is copied by would-be authoritarians, populists, other, other self-interested political leaders uh, elsewhere in the world. So there's been a very strong trend that tends to overlap national boundaries and it has overlapped our national boundary. There's certainly a lot of that happening in the United States. And there is a copycat effect to be, try to be more succinct about it. That, uh, and that is a worrisome, that, that trend has been in effect for over a decade, as I just said, worries me considerably. As these more authoritarian governments continue to grow in strength, many people have been comparing the competing forms of government to the battle between capitalism and socialism during the Cold War. I asked Ambassador Basora if he felt this was a fair comparison. I think it's a very, very good comparison. However, it's also important to make sure that we use new terminology to talk about it. On the one hand, as somebody who's interested in the history of international relations, it would be very simple and in some ways very appropriate to call this, this new phase Cold War 2.0. In other words, now that Russia is completely, uh, under Putin, completely antagonistic and aggressive, Secondly, Xi Jinping is antagonistic and aggressive and increasing economic leverage and resources with which to compete with us. We are in a Cold War, and it's a Cold War partly of ideas, of ideologies, as you put it, the authoritarian-slash-state-dominated economy model on the one hand and the uh, liberal model that we've pursued in the United States and West, most of Western Europe. But there's also, it's very important to keep in mind, that this is, there is also military things, uh, the military threat. There are also military or quasi-military or, as the Russians put it, hybrid warfare techniques that are being used against us. So it's not just ideological, because these people that I'm, I'm referring to, the foreign autocrats that are highly antagonist to the United States, or see America as an existential threat, and also they see democracy and the spread of democracy as an existential threat to their control of power and of the money and, and corruption that goes with it. Because they see it that way, they will use all possible means to undercut us, only in ideological competition, but also in other very direct ways. So as we enter into this new stage of strategic competition between democracy and authoritarianism, where does the balance of power stand right now? Are democracies in danger of falling to more authoritarians? And is this the way of the future? There clearly is a side that has been winning. When you say winning, we won the Cold War proper, and we then won the ground for the first decade or really 15 years until mid-2000s. We, the United States, and our democratic allies around the world were ascendant. New democracies emerged. They were nurtured and helped to grow and prosper. So we were winning until mid-2000s. Then the tide turned, and I'd say, as I said earlier, in the last 15 years or so, there's been significant erosion. We have lost a lot of ground, a lot of it through self-inflicted wounds, not giving all the credit to Mr. Putin or Xi Jinping. So they're winning. We're, we've lost a lot of important ground. That doesn't mean that the end is near and that uh, 
because we were so far ahead in the values that we promoted and that so many people around the world believe in and that it need the U.S. to promote, the idea of basic human rights and freedom and rule of law. That was so solidly entrenched, it would take a long time to totally dismantle this. But there has been very worrisome erosion, so we have been losing ground significantly. As what we do about it and how the, what the prospects are of succeeding in doing it, it has to be a highly strategic approach and a very long-term approach, uh, which goes back to the fundamentals of why we consider democracy, rule of law, respect of human rights important, of who are our real friends in this matter, our real allies. And the policy has to be one of maintaining and cultivating and broadening alliances rather than undercutting them or dismissing them as, as irrelevant uh, artifacts of history. Obviously, this is a different world from the world of the 1940s when for 70, 75 years pursued a very successfully an agenda uh, of defending against the erosion of democracy at the time. But we are in a new period that has a lot of analogies, as we discussed a moment ago, where a very long-term return to the idea that the U.S. absolutely must, for its own survival, continue to support democracy, improve its own democracy, ally with other democratic regimes much more explicitly on the issues of, of governance, but also, very importantly, compete much more systematically and effectively on the economic and military fronts. For example, the Pacific Trade and Investment Agreement that uh, the current administration dropped was a strategically a very valuable move in the right direction of consolidating our alliances in the Pacific uh, or in Asia more broadly at a time when the threat from China was already becoming very worrisome. It's much more so now. We should go back to that model on the trade and investment front. And on the military front, we need to not only stick with and further reaffirm our commitment to the NATO alliance and other alliances, we need to strengthen them and, very importantly, persuade the American public that it is in their self-interest. This is not altruism on the part of the United States. The, the idea has become too much perpetuated that working together with like-minded countries around the world in one form or another alliance is somehow our giving away treasure and they're taking advantage of us. We have benefited enormously from this, uh, from these alliances and from the trade agreements, et cetera, that make up the fabric of the liberal world order that we created and that we nurtured throughout the 70-year uh, the period that I referred to. And so we have to go back to that very systematically and with the realization that we're no longer calling all the shots and we're at a disadvantage in some very important ways. We have a lot of ground to make up because we've lost a lot of ground, particularly in the last few years. The United States has lost ground to make up in terms of world leadership. Is there a chance that China might fall trapped to the many different ways that middle-income economies stagnate? Does their aging population cause concern? How about rising wages for factory workers? What about the protests in Hong Kong? Does Ambassador Basora believe that China will continue on their trajectory and surpass the United States as a global superpower? Not having a complete uh, a crystal ball, I can't uh, can't be certain that nothing will change again. But the but the present trends, it, it's hard to imagine what would derail China from continuing to grow far more rapidly than the United States or than Europe, the EU countries, uh, or Japan or our other allies, our other traditional allies. And of course, you know, there could be a revolution, but the methods of control and the technology of control in China is so powerful that there is absolutely zero, almost zero correlation, in my view, between the threat to the control of Xi Jinping or his eventual successors, 
no threat to their no significant threat to their power let's say less than 1% probability as i see it if you compare that to the soviet system which developed its own weight in part they did not have a systematic means of central control and leadership succession whereas the until now the chinese communist party has been extremely effective about making sure that there can be no threat to its power and succession other communist leaders who follow the present leaders as has been the case ever since mao zedong and of course because of the economic rapid economic growth and the fact that they are clearly committed to uh, turning a large part of that a significant portion of that growth into military expenditures and development of strategic weapons they are they will be an increasing threat and they have an agenda of dominating their region there are some you've seen with the philippines you've seen in other places that there are some countries and leaders in that region that are beginning to to kowtow to use a chinese term to kowtow to to beijing so that is a very threatening trend and of course the claim of the south china seas and the artificial islands that created and militarized means that, that I strongly believe that that's going to be a major major source of competition and potential threat. Already it's a threat to our interests in some general and the more economic in general sense, but it could become a very serious military threat at some point in the next decade or so. In today's society, many people on both the left and the right would say that these are challenges indeed, but they are mainly for other people to worry about. Why should Americans care about how other countries run their governments? Shouldn't that be something for them to decide? I referred earlier to waves of democratization and waves of authoritarian regression. So why should we care? Why should we care about the coronavirus? The first outbreak occurred in an admittedly large city, but way way in central China, uh, Wuhan. <laughs> why should we care that about that? Ten, eleven million people so far away. Well, the answer, of course is dramatically evident now. Events in small countries far away can make a huge difference. One, you undoubtedly, uh, given your own study of international history, will will remember uh, the rationale of Neville Chamberlain for not sticking to their commitment to defend Czechoslovakia against Hitler. Small country far away, why should we care? The answer is very clear. History has shown very clearly. So. What happens in Hungary today, or what happens in the Philippines tomorrow, or in Taiwan, uh, is very, very important. It, it's almost like a domino theory. Uh, the dominoes can can collapse more quickly, or more or more slowly, but they do affect each other. When one domino falls, even if it's far away, it ultimately can have a uh, a chain effect. Uh, and we've seen that in the past, and we're seeing it to some extent now. Finally. Why should we, as the people of New Hampshire in particular, care about these things? Many people think that they do not interact with the world on a daily basis, although I would contend we are all touched by global events daily. So why would it be important for them to be knowledgeable about global affairs? The state of New Hampshire is a state that plays a very important role in American politics, and it's a little bit of a petri dish for American democracy. And the things that are that we've been talking about, and other things that we could talk about regarding the techniques of destroying democracy or undercutting democracy that are being used. If they succeed in New Hampshire, I mean, it's too much to say that as New Hampshire goes, so goes the nation. But nevertheless, uh, that's a little bit too self-aggrandizing. However, what happens in New Hampshire has a disproportionately large effect on the American political system and on the American political culture, both on the institutional process of the primaries and elections on the one hand, but also how people think about politics. 
the fact that this is, has always been, or in recent decades at least, has been a rather balanced state with independence or so-called undeclared being a plurality. Uh, this is a wonderful test case for democracy, and if you or a wonderful example of how democracy can and should work. So keeping democracy healthy in New Hampshire is important. And you cannot keep democracy healthy in New Hampshire if you're not aware of the many threats that are coming from outside the U.S., not to mention some coming from Washington. I should stress that I am an independent, and any remarks that I make about our current administration or past administrations are not motivated by a sense of partisan loyalty to one party or another or disrespect for the other party in its historic traditions. But I do affirm that some of the things that are happening in Washington are dangerous for our democracy in the United States. And one of the healthy things that continues to happen is that democracy in New Hampshire, of course, there are many other states where it's true as well, but democracy in New Hampshire is relatively healthy. And it's very important to keep it that way. And you can't keep it that way if you are oblivious to what's happening in the rest of the world. Certainly words to live by. This speaks to the importance of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire and the key role it plays. Please do consider supporting this organization so it can continue to build a global community and create programs to help people understand global issues. Thank you to Ambassador Basora for taking the time to chat with me about the importance of global democracy. said that no democracy has fallen farther or faster into autocracy than the current state of Venezuela. The history of this country is tragic, despite some bright points, and there is no current end in sight. Back in the 1970s, Venezuela was one of the wealthiest and most democratic countries in Latin America. This was not a particularly difficult feat to fall off, as many countries on the continent, Argentina, Chile, Brazil, and others, were under some particularly brutal dictatorships for all or part of this decade. Also, global oil prices were surging and the coffers of the government were full. How then do we contrast this with the current state of affairs in the country, where there are few resources, popular discontent, and a leader who seems to become more authoritarian by the day? I spoke with Javier Corrales, Dwight W. Morrow 1895 professor and chair of political science at Amherst College, about the history of this country, the reality of the current regime, and how their democratic backsliding fits into the wider narrative of today. Let's talk a little bit about that point that you made about Venezuela being a beacon of democracy and prosperity in the 1970s. Without exaggerating that point, there's no doubt that the levels of democracy and prosperity achieved by Venezuela in the 1970s were historic and incredibly unusual. There were very few cases in Latin America, in fact, throughout the global south, that had these levels of democratic openness and wealth. People thought that it was such an outlier that they didn't want to study it because they thought it was non-representative. And they would explain all of it to the fact that Venezuela was a big oil producer. And back then, people used to think that if you have oil, you're going to have a lot of wealth, and therefore you can produce democracy. Now, of course, this very same country, now having experienced democratic backsliding, is basically undermining that 
theory that once pointed to say that high levels of wealth through oil or through other means, but high levels of wealth will secure your democratic institutions. Well, it turns out that wealth or oil is really no guarantee that your democratic institutions will survive. So what happened? Essentially, Venezuela entered into a very serious economic crisis in the 1980s for very complicated reasons. The democratic parties at the time were unable to get the country out of the crisis. Other Latin American countries were able to escape the lost decade of the 80s, but Venezuela didn't. Venezuela continued to experience economic decline in the 1990s. And so this gave rise to a significant discontent with liberal institutions. People were blaming political parties or politicians indistinctively and a sense of we need to do something radical. We need a strong hand solution. And in this context in the 1990s, Venezuelans overwhelmingly support the election of Hugo Chavez, who was a young former lieutenant colonel who once staged a coup with a somewhat extremist argument, very populist, very angry at the politicians, and promising to overhaul all institutions and to rid the country of traditional politicians. And Venezuelans were mesmerized by this because Venezuelans were blaming their politicians for their two decades of economic crisis. So he gets elected democratically. And the first thing that he does is he revamps the constitution, and this constitution gives the president significant powers. And so with time, Chavez begins to use these new formal powers, acquires new ones, and gradually begins to eliminate all the other institutions of checks and balances the country had. It was a gradual process in that you probably wouldn't have noticed it month to month. You only notice it kind of like getting old after 10 years. You look back and you're like, oh my God, I have changed a lot. And so that's kind of how it was. It wasn't very noticeable to many observers on a day-to-day. It's not like one day the country went from bright to dark. It was very gradual. It was very mixed. There was a lot of noise. A bunch of things were happening. Some things appeared to be democratic. But after 10 years, the net result was that there were significant erosions in the traditions of checks and balances and in the degree of pluralism. 20 years after Hugo Chavez took control over the country, what did things look like today? So Venezuela has become, in a matter of 20 years, a country that is, by almost all accounts, severely authoritarian. Very few democratic spaces remain There are some groups of civil society that still operate, a few media groups that still operate, a few parties that still operate, but for all intents and purposes, the regime has obtained full control of most institutions, and none of these institutions are run in a democratic, pluralistic fashion. It is shocking because, although we know that there are many democracies that decline over time, they become less democratic over time, very few have gone down this low. 
in terms of elimination of democratic institutions. So politically, it's very grim and it is very hard for any actor to compete politically, despite the resistance by many groups in society, the regime manages to hang on to power. That's kind of the story, much more complicated, but it has made many analysts think that same thing could happen to other democracies. Democracies that are experiencing a crisis of this nature, where citizens blame all politicians for the troubles of the day, that there could be a support for a leader who promises to change the institutions and acquire more powers in order to be able to introduce new reforms. And so this is what where is many studies of democracy, how easy an electorate can be captivated by this approach to politics. Throughout our conversation, I could not help but notice the similarities between what is going on in Venezuela and other countries around the world. I wanted to know if Javier saw it the same way I did and what it means for the future. Let me say that, that there are examples happening both in the global south as well as in advanced wealthy democracies. This is happening in the hands of politicians who claim to be on the left and politicians who claim to be on the right and politicians who try to be above all of these labels. So, for example, in Europe at the moment, we're worried about Hungary, Poland, one could even include Turkey, and of course, Russia under Putin. We're very worried about India, for example, and we're worried about the Philippines. And in Latin America, we had comparable cases to Venezuela in the 2000s, in Ecuador and in Bolivia. They are doing a little bit better now. But we're worried about Brazil and Mexico. None of these cases that I've mentioned, except perhaps Russia, have become authoritarian as Venezuela has under Maduro. But they are regressing in ways that make us think that their endpoint could also be similar to Venezuela's endpoint today. You may be wondering about how so many countries seem to be backsliding into authoritarianism, but none of them have seen successful coups to take power away from democratically elected governments. This certainly was the way that dictators took power in the 20th century. Have we entered a new era of democratically elected autocrats? What we're seeing in the current era of autocracy is that very few autocratic regimes now are autocratic in the way that autocracies were autocratic in the 20th century, when they were able to obtain totalitarian control. In other words, we still have the Koreas and the Saudi Arabias, which are very totalitarian, but for the most part, the latest crop of authoritarianism seems to suggest that they don't go all the way. They still leave some spaces open. The debate is whether that's the result of them not needing to go any farther, or is it because they just have a certain limit to their power? We don't know. But it is true that if we want to find examples of tougher authoritarian regimes, all we need to go is to uh, the Cold War era, and we'll find plenty of decarcerating cases. Venezuela is not one of those. Very few autocracies today match those levels of control. Does this then require a new term and a new way of thinking about these forms of government? 
Exactly. And this is what's so worrisome. Um, many political scientists call this democratic backsliding, and it's maybe a new phenomenon. The evidence in the past was that democracies would end in the hands of groups that couldn't compete democratically. They didn't have the means to win elections, and so out of office and without the prospect of winning elections, they would conspire with military actors to overthrow democratic actors. But what we're seeing now is that political forces that can win elections, presidents who have some degree of popularity, they win elections and then they begin to undermine the democratic institutions. This is happening in many countries, not all democracies, of course, but enough of them for many political scientists to say that we're living in a new era of autocratization, a new wave that we call democratic backsliding because they start out with significant degrees of democratic institutions and quality of life, and then they begin to regress. Without a doubt, this is a challenge that faces the entire world and seems to be a serious problem to try and resolve. What can be done about these tendencies, and how can we learn from other countries' experiences to avoid democratic backsliding for the United States? You know, I think the important thing to keep in mind is that all these processes of democratic backsliding, they polarize society. Some groups immediately recognize this for what it is, an introduction of authoritarian practices and a restriction on pluralism and an excessive concentration of powers in the hands of the executive branch. And another set of groups become very forgiving of this. They support the president. They become enablers. And so the important lesson is that this type of polarization producing groups that are very aware of the direction that the country is taking with enablers is what's really dangerous here, more so than the intentions of the president. We have seen many presidents worldwide wanting to ease the institutions of checks and balances and the separation of powers and judicial independence, for example. But what changes is, do they get popular support for these things? And many times they don't, but there are times when they do. And it is that type of popular support that is really very dangerous because, as we said in the very beginning, they rely on these supporters to shield them from possible enemies. So they win in elections, they have support in the media, they certainly have support in Congress. So the electorate that doesn't like this needs to really figure out an electoral strategy, which is probably the key lesson. The key lesson is to think elections, elections, elections in order to weaken the electoral power of these enablers so that the enablers know that there is a cost to supporting the president's excesses. And many times, groups in the opposition don't rise to the occasion. They don't figure out an effective electoral strategy. I myself wouldn't exactly know. It varies from country to country, context to context. But I would definitely say that it is very important for the groups that are seeing these processes for what they are, that they develop a remarkable electoral strategy as they go forward. It's not a simple thing to stop, 
it is a complicated process that will not be resolved in one year or in one election, but nevertheless, one has to try almost with every opportunity at the polls to mobilize the electorate against incumbents who have these intentions. Certainly good advice to be aware of for all of us. I want to thank Javier for his taking the time to speak with us over the phone. The World Affairs Council of New Hampshire had planned on bringing him up to speak on this topic, but with the current crisis, we could no longer host the event. It is great to have the opportunity to continue to get the information out to our audiences through this format. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Global and the Granite State podcast. Please do take an opportunity to check out our website at www.wacnh.org, and we look forward to bringing you the next episode next month. <laughs>